Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 22. My name is DK, the creative producer here, the founder of Creative Welly, but it is also brought to you by my partner in crime, John O'Tucker, who produces the video podcast of Creative Welly. Please check that out. You're listening to the audio podcast. But John O'Tucker runs Empire Films, a great guy, great video producer. Check him out. And also a big shout out David Hamilton as well over at Flashdog Studios, where we record the Creative Welly video episodes. In episode 22, we get to chat with Jane Guy, a women's business coach, blogger, and podcaster, and also has an extremely interesting background as well in family violence, sexual health, and so on and so forth. We are also chatting with Brian Lucid, Professor of Interaction Design and Head of School at the Wellington School of Design. Please enjoy this episode where we get into lots of discussions around those two very divergent topics, but we converge together on lots of ideas and thinking. Enjoy. So pick a colour. Black. Okay, B-L-A-C-K. Pick a number in it. Number? I'm going to pick five. Five in it? One, two, three, four, five. You pick a final number. Seven. And then we'll reveal what's behind the seven. See, it's kind of cool, right? And then this is a question to all of us to kick us off. What is your greatest regret? I know, that was a whew, right in in the beginning. Anybody want to jump in? Because I've got to answer it as well. That's a tough one to start. <laughs> I do apologise for that. I'm going to change my number. <laughs> I'm going to go back. I can start. Okay. Probably. Um, it's probably not greatest, but it's one that popped up. Yeah. So right. probably, I'm a big swimmer. I love swimming. Mm. And my granddad was a swimmer. Big swimmer. I've got lots of his medals. Probably not sitting down with him and talking to him about swimming. Nice, yeah. Like where that happened. And where he went and what he did and... I've got an amazing picture of him in the war, actually, with some woolly swimming trunks on, <laughs> sat with his big shoulders. No way. Um, Woolen trunks guess. straight away. Yeah. So it's probably not sitting. And I think, mm. you know, when you talk about lots of my friends haven't got grandparents anymore. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things is not actually asking them all those questions. Yeah. But you're usually too young to think that that's the thing that you're supposed to do. Or appreciate or them, right? That's all. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good answer. It's hard to go. It, it you you learn. I mean, you learn things as you go through them, and so, you know, I recognize now when like my father got very ill. He died of brain cancer, probably maybe seven years ago now. Um, I realize how much I was unable to deal with that at the time, mm. and in hindsight, there's so many things that I want, would want to have done, the conversations I would have wanted to have. But I recognize that in the moment, it was really difficult to mm. position myself in that way. And then sort of, you know, you look back and you say, oh, why did I act that way? But it's, it's, a, it's like a life experience you go through and you learn from, unfortunately. Mm. But, um, yeah, you look back and you say, oh, wow, I, I didn't handle that the way I would have thought I would have handled it. You know, I, I thought I would have been better at that. I thought I would have been more resilient. But, you know, when it was apparent, oh, how, how do I respond to that? Yeah. Wow. So there's certainly a regret in there. Thank you for sharing that. It's deep and <laughs> yeah. sorry for your loss. No, no, no. And... Do you know the questions you would have, might have asked him? Um, it's less about the questions I would have asked him and more about the fact that I, 
Oh, it depends on how personal we want to get. Um, in that, in some ways, there was a lot of avoidance yeah. of like of, of recognizing that there was a lot of pain there, and it was just something that I couldn't fully deal with. And so, instead of doubling down, really kind of engaging in that way, I was kind of drifting in and out, and you know, and then dealing with guilt and those kinds of things. And I think that's natural. I mean, I've had um, you know some other incidents since then of you know people who are close to me who have gotten sick, and. I'm now much more mindful of it and recognize, oh, all right, yeah, and, and how can I be more, you know, how can I be better, you know, present for them and, you know, not sort of live out those kinds of same mistakes. But, um, yeah, it was, that was really my first experience of death as a, mm. you know, I mean, I wasn't a child, I was certainly an adult, but, it, you know, of someone really close to me getting sick and dying. And uh, I think in hindsight I sort of look back and say, Hmm. Yeah, that's. I learned a lot from it, but I don't think I responded in the way that I would have expected I would have responded yeah. in that moment. Wow. Hmm. Thank you again. <laughs> Good question. I'm struggling with my regret. Although it did pop, like you say, something pops in your mind, right? And you go, just go with it. When I was younger, as in in school, I wasn't very academic. I know I surprised it. I know. <laughs> However, there was only one thing I could do in school, like a breeze, as in A's all the way through, fantastic. And it was very safe because then my parents were like, great, at least she's good at something, right? Because my two older brothers were academic and very clever. And it was art, right? It's the only thing I can stick anything wherever, it's easy. And I couldn't get excited for other people's plans for my life, even though I enjoyed art. And I lost the kind of... I suppose, the interest, the curiosity in it, because I was kind of forced to go that way. Yeah. And because it was easy in inverted commas, and I say that very lightly, not like, hey, it was easy. No, no, it was easy, but I wasn't challenged enough. And I regret now, because I've just taken it back up. Mm. I started sketching again and doing some other things. It's like, a, this is delightful, you know? This is lovely. Why does it take me 25, maybe longer years to like revisit some of this stuff? And that maybe is not really a regret, but something that tinges when mm. I think about it, which feels regretful. Yeah. Ooh. That's an interesting one. I mean, I am really privileged that I get to work with really talented people every day. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I'm happy to talk about talent because I'm not sure I fully believe in it in terms of those like natural ability yeah. um, versus, you know, kind of the time that you put into it in terms of what you get back out of it again. Um, but I've run across a few students which um, really opened my eyes, uh, and one of which was a you know, wonderful designer who I later came to realize was uh, just an absolutely phenomenal singer. And when I asked her about that, it, she had the same response. She said, yeah, this is something I've always been able to do, and mm. it just wasn't challenging enough. And uh, I've, I've, you know, I have tons of privileges in my life, but I've never been in the situation where I've said, oh, this is too easy. I have to walk away from that. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. what a wonderful gift. Yeah. But uh, it's something I respect. Yeah, you know? totally. Because I think also that something like when you said about art, like art to me when, at school was you either could draw or you couldn't, and then you weren't any good at art. Yeah, so, so it was binary, me, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And my sister was the artist. My right. dad was an artist, my sister. So I was always known as her sister you know, the really good artist. So then for me, it was always, oh, no, no, I'm not good at being creative because I'm not good at drawing. Wow, so you lumped it all together. So I lumped it all together, but knew I was good with people. So then I was always, you'll be a nurse or a teacher, like, that's what you'll be. Mm. And I was like, no, I won't. And then slowly discovered that I was very creative, but in completely different ways. But it was always like, oh, no, no, that's not kind of for you. 
So how do you then define creativity now? And then I'll ask the professional. <laughs> I'm setting you up for the worst coming, that's why. But in terms of your life then, when you talk about creative, how would you position yourself? There? I think it's in everything because maths is, is, art, is creative, right? Yeah. So for me, everybody's got creativity in them. It's just whatever you, they... It, I think it's that thing of being in flow. You know when you know you're doing something... And you, you, it's so easy and it just comes, like you say, there's a talent. That's when you're being creative, whether you're building a bridge, working out a maths problem, painting a picture, knitting a jumper, good jumper. Um, yeah, that's when you know. It's like when you, I always describe it as being in flow, it's like, you know when you're on your bike and you stick your legs out and you're going down a hill? <laughs> that for me is when people are in flow. That's a lovely description, yeah. Things just, yeah, yeah. just click. yeah. And from a professional slash academic oh, view on it. I mean, I, think, I don't think it would be any different. I think that, you know, to me, it's more about um, uh, being curious. You know, I mean, the, I find that the, the most creative people I know are the ones who are the most curious. They want to learn. They want to know about other people. They want to, you know, they want to be engaged in that way. And then translate that into some sort of work. I've been, you know... When I've gone and studied within other disciplines, I was always really interesting to find that at some point they would say, oh, you know, here's something special about what we do. And I would say, yeah, that's just creativity. Like that's, you know, right. you know whether it's in, you know, like you know, principled negotiation, you know, and okay, this is, you know, what we do to learn more about other people and we go through this process. And it's like, well, yeah, that's... That's, that's research and design process, research right. and it's the creative process. And so something that I constantly try to bring, certainly our design students, is the idea that they're developing a whole set of skills that they actually will use in a whole variety of aspects in their life because often they try to really compartmentalize it and say, oh, this is just what I do in terms of design and say, no, this is actually kind of a superpower that actually will, you know, it will be something that you'll apply in a wide variety of different places. But, you know, when it comes to, like, talent, um, I've generally found that, yeah, certain people, you know, pick things up very quickly, but the most talented people I've worked with and seen are people who, you know, you discover have put hours and hours and hours totally. and hours right. behind the scenes in terms of doing it because it's something that they're absolutely passionate about. And so very, everyone walks into it thinking, oh, I'm not good at this because I can't pick it up right away. Mm. And you say, no, this is actually, Normal. you know, this is a, this is a pra- process <laughs> of nice mastery that needs to be, yeah, grown. Before I ask you an academic question mm-hmm. now, I'm going to ask Jono to come in because I think the mic just needs to be moved just a little bit. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. It's what we do. We do it I can take the scratchy jumper off. If you know. no, 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 no. It's not the scratchy jumper. I think it's the angle, that's all. There we go. My big chin. The guy chin. <laughs> the guy known chin. as the guy chin. Is that what it's known yeah, as? Yeah, my sister's the chin. guy chin. It's a beautiful chin. Thanks. In terms of creative creativity in an academic realm mm-hmm. and how it's defined because as the head of the creative yeah. school I, what's the the longo oh so it? so it, the 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 name is napai mahotonga thank you right the wellington school of design mm-hmm. so you know we we now have a we now have a Tereo name, which is really wonderful, that's been gifted to us. Um, but, of course, the Wellington School of Design has been around for 136, 137 years now. Wow. So, yeah, it's a very old institution. Mm-hmm. And as the head of that school, and as someone who deals in the academic realm for creativity and design specifically, mm-hmm. what, is, what have you seen over the last few years, and where is it at now when we define creativity in an academic mm. centre? Oh, I mean, I think there's, a, there's so many levels of that, and some of it is actually quite political. 
because often what you're really talking about is a series of subject matters that once used to be taught in polytechnics and are now taught in universities. Mm. And how they've transitioned into universities uh, sometimes has been somewhat uncomfortable. Um, because, of course, we want to then be able to uh, evaluate the results of that work and metricize it and quantify it in ways that, you know, in the same ways that we try to do that with other forms of, of research, you know, mm -hmm. if we sort of define creative practice as research, which I think we absolutely should. Um, so that's always been a very uncomfortable piece. And I think that no matter where you go in the world, you recognize that, yeah, all of our institutions are sort of on this journey from, you know, 100% focus on practice towards the sort of academizing of the disciplines and how we sort of position ourselves within that. And every institution sort of sits in a different place. Um, you know, the fear, and it, you know, from my, my opinion, my fear is the, the, the loss of practice, right? So, you know, I'm still really passionate about keeping you know, keeping my hands active, and I mean that in a metaphorical sense because not everything is, you know, um, but certainly, you know, that idea of making, producing, prototyping, iterative forms of design. Um, and, you know, that's where I want to keep certainly the school centered, and that's where I want to keep my work centered. Um, I don't want it to get to, I don't want to get to the point where I'm simply just analyzing work that I could be doing, right? Like yeah. that walking too far away from that is something that I worry about. Because I'm really passionate about practice. Like I'm passionate about doing the work. Mm. Um, and that's just something that, you know, inside me is something that I want to continue doing. So in terms of some of the, the stuff that in terms of academic creativity is obvious. We have the fine arts on one end of the spectrum, yeah. which we would know as traditional arts maybe. Uh, right through then to some of the stuff that I'm seeing around computational design. Uh, and, and things where parametrically produced mm -hmm. content uh, where you just algorithm-based stuff, really. And that's held up as art and design as mm -hmm. well. So you've got this widening, I suppose, of the, the design-slash-art definition, or am I not? I'm not sure. I mean, to me, it's about how it's going to be used, you know? So, I mean, okay. a lot of it is about intent. Um, so I can absolutely be doing computational work, and you know, some of my background is, is in that space. Um, and I can do it in a art context where I want to create something that may provoke an idea or provoke an emotion or provoke an experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I can also do it uh, in the context of, say, a data visualization where I want to teach you about, you know, so a certain chunk of data that's flowing, and we want to be able to look at it and understand something and carry a, an idea away from that, being able mm -hmm. to read it in a certain way. Um, and so we would have a very clear intent in terms of how that's supposed to communicate. So, you know, in a traditional landscape, one would be called design and one would be called fine art. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's really blurry. And, of course, and there's really interesting work that sits at the border of, of both of those. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, for most of us, we actually don't spend a lot of time trying to define that. Right. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's often about how is this being applied? You know, how are we taking this and then putting it into action? Mm -hmm. I love that. I wonder how much it's changed because I did. I studied theatre at uni, and in those days, my God, it's like twenty-two years ago. Okay. I know, but our, the the move for more and more of this rather than this in the classroom. So you know, we learned set design and building, how to run a theatre and also acting and blah, blah, blah. but they they're, um they really wanted you to get into discussions about how 
theatre on a page could provoke conversations about every day. Right. And they spent a lot of time, probably more than they were supposed to, the lecturers, getting us to have those back and forth conversations. What is this text saying about where we live and how we live and how we... But the move I remember when I was leaving was to do more, less of that and much more of the go and write a thing about this thing. Yeah. And they really, really wanted us to keep having those back and forth conversations. Mm. They got really heated, but it was amazing as a, an 18 year old. You were like, whoa, this is like epic. <laughs> because we're not just sitting reading a text, we're actually looking and demonstrating it, how that text then mm. works in today's. Like the impact essentially, language. or the context yeah, yeah, yeah. of yeah. this play. Yeah. In and I think we're still in the same place, and it still goes back and forth. You know, there are people out in the world that sees, you know, going to design school or even to art school as, okay, you're there to sort of prepare students for industry. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we want to go much further than that, yeah. right? And so it's really about how do we function within society and a community and within our families and the value of that and within their lives. Um, but what I would say the biggest transition, and this is a really wonderful and joyful transition, is that when I was in university, and of course that was a long time ago, you know, we had an understanding of, you know, okay, this is what we do, and yeah, we believe it's important. Um, you know, and often our faculty sort of, you know, would tell us how important it was, and we were still kind of trying to, you know, kind of understand that. Um, we then went through a decade where, in some ways, design sort of ruled the world, right? The, you know, that design-led companies were the most valued companies in the world. Uh, you know, Apple and all of those kinds of companies. Um, we then went through a few years where, of course, we then destroyed the world and made things terrible. Uh, and so the reputation of that sort of dropped a little bit. But what's really joyful is that the students coming in to study design today honestly believe and want to change the world and want to do that through the work they do. And that was, that's a very different positioning towards the students. Like certainly when I came into university, I was saying, I want to study, I want to be creative, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do that. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do design. But today, when you talk to the students, they're really passionate about having an impact in the world. Yeah. And design is just a vehicle to do that. So yes, many students might say, I want to be a poster designer or I want to be a fashion designer. But quite a few students will say, I want to work in sustainability. You know, I want to work in this space. Yeah. So, like, that's not a that's not an academic discipline. That's not an artistic <coughs> discipline. It's I have a goal, yeah. and and here is how I'm going to apply myself to that goal. Mm. And I would say that's a fundamental transition than probably what we would have seen ten years ago. For context, size, scale, what the school is. Could you give us a little bit about? about so know, yeah, I mean, we, we you know everything bounces up and down, but we're about 1,200 undergraduates. Right. So it's a fairly significant yeah. body of students. And we, uh, in terms of the, the, the design school, we teach across a range of disciplines. So fashion design and textile design, industrial design, so product, uh, spatial design, mm -hmm. uh, visual communication design, uh, concept design, which is sort of for entertainment, film, television. Um, and then we have integrated design, which allows our students to sort of move broadly through those disciplines. So a new one integrated. That's design? a fairly new one. Yeah. Yes, and it was a bit. Um, it was a real challenge trying to get a um, a non-major or a more mm -hmm. broadly defined major uh, defined. You know, it was, right, it was actually quite a battle to do that mm -hmm. because you know everyone is, expects you know we know what these things are, um, but you know for me I look at the school which is an amazing thing and say well the majors that we have 
are the majors that we would have had during the Industrial Revolution. Like, these haven't changed. (laughs) You know, they have not changed. And certainly the work that I do every day has very, has absolute connections across multiple of those disciplines. But even for myself, I sit between two of them, possibly three of them, if we wanted to define it. But I don't actually, I'm not rooted in any one of those. I studied in one, but the rest of my career has been moving between them. Mm. And I would say that the majority of our students will be doing the exact same thing. Integrated design. Love that. Integrated design, yeah. Well, that kind of middle ground is really interesting from a a multiple kind of intersectional way of thinking, which I'm a big fan of. I love stealing ideas from Mm. different places and putting them together. Um, But I'm really intrigued that younger people now are also seeing the worth in that and not just going for a a graphic design degree, for example, um, and they wanted to be much broader in their interest. Fascinating. But it's also a lot harder for people to make decisions. Uh, and too much choice. Too much choice and In the I world, think, you mean? It, yeah, it, right. I'd say in, in the world. Um, too much choice and, uh, you know, I think it comes from, you know, stresses from, from the external world, you know, yeah. with... Uh, you know, we've seen so much kind of disarray, COVID and a few other things like that. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it sort of is limiting that mental bandwidth. Yeah. And then we're finding that, um, as you can probably imagine, uh, sort of the call on, um, you know, for sort of mental health services has tripled from, you know, from the student body and for the staff as well. Um, And I think that's probably happening everywhere, you know, across the country. Um, But, you know, we recognize that that actually has a huge impact on people's decision making. They just have that Mm -hmm. much less bandwidth to be able to make a decision and sit with it and feel comfortable with it. And so we're seeing a lot more, I'm not quite sure about this, I'm not quite sure about that, not wanting to sort of, you know, nail themselves down. And I completely understand that. Because what if I make the wrong decision? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and of course, they, and, and the deep dark secret is there actually are no wrong <laughs> decisions. No. You know, I mean, I you know certainly I you know I thought about you know studying many different disciplines. Uh, you know, when I went to university, and I was rooted in one, and I could potentially have jumped to another, and I chose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, today, you know, some of my work is in that space, but it has had no real effect on me. Yeah. It's about going through the process and going through the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's really hard to explain that to somebody when they're looking at, you know, three years, four years of study and saying, yeah. what do you mean it's not going to matter yeah. what I do? It's like, no, it does, but don't be so worried about it. Well, you touched on mental health, which is a lovely segue to bring you in for more about what you <laughs> Thanks. do. Well, no, I just want to balance this, and yeah. then we can have a robust conversation about kind of if there is an overlap, but also other things I want to talk about your past as well a little bit would be fun. <laughs> but just to give you a little bit of the spotlight. Thanks. Mental health kind of is in your ballpark of kind of what you've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah. Something like that, right? So, but you're doing, I know you're doing something different now, but your more immediate history was in family mental health, uh, sorry, family violence and mental health, yeah. as I understand it. Could tell us about your experience of that. So I started off as a youth worker in the UK um, and still really, really enjoy hanging out with young people. Sounds a bit weird, but um, just love those conversations and um, ways of looking at the world. Mm. And so I started off in sexual health for young people. And then the, the, the time of um, when I left the UK to move here, we were in a like another pandemic of teenage pregnancy. Like the UK was going through a huge, massive 
Moral shift. panic, wasn't it? Massive, especially where I lived in the northwest. Um, poverty, lots mm. of young people um, experiencing lots of things. So came from that to here um, and then stayed working with young people um, and then did some training, started to do some training around family violence and crisis work. Mm. Um, and I, I laugh because I left that job like three or four times. <laughs> My boss was like, come back. <laughs> and it's, it's a job that gets in your bones. Yeah. Like it's an yeah. industry that gets into your bones. Um, and I think, you, you know, there's a huge, it, uh, massive amount of people who burn out from that work because they don't look after themselves or yeah. they're not looked after very well. Um, but we were looked after very well. Um, I worked in an amazing, still amazing um, group of people organisation. Um, and then kind of worked around the family violence, sexual violence um, on a bigger scale, particularly around last lockdown. So I was part of a big hooey who looked at um, those services across the country in a pandemic. How do you look after people and make sure they're all right in a pandemic when everyone has to yeah. wear masks and go through a process of seeing a, another human who yeah. they're not supposed to be near? Um, yeah. So sitting down and working out that every day for five weeks as to how that was an unbelievably amazing experience for, my, for myself professionally, but also to be connected to those people through that time all around the country. So designing... Human Designs, services. services, yeah, yeah. User and procedures, services. which I really like. I kind of yeah. like that procedure experience, so customer yeah. experience. It sounds weird in that. But um, in the context field. of sharp end stuff, which yeah. is family violence, sexual yeah. health, or mental health as well, yeah. it's just like, what were the outcomes of that HUI and, and that development work? Because how do you <laughs> then factor in maybe family violence at home when you're in lockdown? And how do you then reach out or access services? It was a really good opportunity for me to have, one, be part of that conversation, but also to remind people who weren't part of that that not everybody is safe during a pandemic. What an amazing yeah. time to reconnect with your family and be... That was the message, right? Yeah, it was. We've all slowed down. We've all hung out with our kids. And I kept reminding people that some people should not be locked in a house with their family, particularly young people whose way of connecting is to be in rooms with other young people. Yeah. And yeah, they're on their devices, but actually we know young people connect really well when they're in the same space. Um, so for me, it was a really good opportunity to have some really honest conversations with people who just weren't aware of that stuff mm. um, and go through that. And then I, because I, I left that job, went back to it during the pandemic because my other work kind of died um, completely died and then um, after that I was like this has been a really good chance for me to look at whether or not I want to still do that work and I was like I don't want I'm done with that work not done with it but I'm done with it in that context yeah, yeah. well you did your innings yeah, you like spent your time 15 there. years 20 years and in, like you said in those professions it's more vocations than anything because it draws out of you not just your time but also your health and your yeah. your compassion and your empathy goes so into that. Um, reflecting back on those 15 years, what are the big takeaways that you've learned? Um, probably um, experience people, humans experience of other humans in a system capacity is so important. So that me, I mean, in the way I mean that is. Somebody's first experience, I always go back to, what is a young person's first experience of health, for example, which can impact on mm. the rest of the mm. 
their life, the gotcha, rest yeah. of the way that they view their body, the rest of the way they view how they see health in their body. Um, and that when I used to train doctors and nurses around child protection and family violence, and I always came back to what has somebody come from and what are they going to when they come in your space? And how can you make that the best experience possible for someone? Justina, I'm listening to you. I'm here for you. You might have three minutes or whatever it is now you can see a GP for. But that make that the best yeah. three minutes of their time so that they go away and they go, do you know what? The next time I have find a bump or a lump, I'm going to go back to that person because it was a really awesome experience. Mm. So for me, that was just, that is so important. Yeah. And we all remember a bad nurse or doctor we've seen. <laughs> yeah. Or a teacher or, a teacher or whatever, yeah, mm-hmm. someone in authority. And we always remember a really good one. So, you yeah. know, a person who went slightly out of their way to bring you an extra cup of tea or, mm. you know, just spend five minutes going, what's going on for you? You all right? So, for me, that was the biggest, biggest thing. What have you learned about taking care of yourself in that kind of industry? Because, you know, it, it's interesting, you called it a vocation, and I think that's a really important thing because same with our faculty, right? Our faculty are passionate about their students. Um, They're all experts in a particular discipline, but we are increasingly taking on more and more pastoral care. But yet we are untrained and we know that we're untrained. Um, And we also don't necessarily have the same support system. And so I'm seeing, you know, in the same way that we recognize that our our students are struggling with the lockdown, um, our faculty are as well. And you know, I think that there's a lot that we could learn about, like, how do we actually take care of ourselves so that we're able to actually support the students? We haven't quite found that balance yet. It's probably learning about what's your job and what's not your job. Yeah. And actually having a system to, to support the fact that you say, this isn't mine, it needs to go there. Yeah. But also, I think, for people, like, I work for an NGO who were very, we had lots of supervision and lots of, you know, we would talk lots after if we'd been on an all-nighter with someone or we'd been to, sat with someone in a police station for 10 hours or we had a lot of connection with a, something that was set up that we could instantly go to. But even when I talked to friends who were doctor, emergency doctors or with, I'm like, who looks after you? And they're like, oh, we go to the mm. pub. We go to the pub. Yeah. You know, I've just seen three people die tonight, um, you know, and I've been covered in whatever and I've ran from one room to another, to another, to another. I'm like, who looks after you after that? And they're like, oh, we just go and hang out at the pub. <laughs> it's like, so we don't even have that set up in those systems. Yeah. So it's probably learning what's yours and what's not and setting a very tight boundary around that and not trying to allow people to go beyond that. Yeah. It's like just, and, and knowing that if you're tired anyway or you're, you've got a lot of work on anyway, allowing staff to to absolutely work out what's theirs and what's not theirs. Yeah. I think that the, the, the thing that I fear most is a faculty member who feels that they are the last line of defense yeah. for a particular student right, because yeah. they, can't, they can't sit and stay in that place for too long without yeah. it really deeply affecting them. Yeah. And you know, not feeling like they have somebody else that they can, you know, again, it's an expert, someone, mm. a specialist who they can then refer that student to in order to, yeah, totally. in order to assist them. The new way that they're moving, kind of models that they want to move into, particularly around places like primary schools and high schools where teachers are doing more, is actual um, centres of care. So you go to school and, yeah, you see your teacher, but there's actually all these other professionals that are part of the school. You don't leave the school to go and see them. They're actually 
actually as part of that thing. So you then get this, again, community of a place where you spend so much of your time when you're young. You're yeah. at school so much of the time, so why can't those people be in rather than you? This is, I think this is a really good model, and it's, uh, you know, we're starting to see this happen in, in a few places, um, particularly around things like coaching. You know, actually, you know, the, the, recognizing that there's a difference between maybe a coach and a teacher. Yeah. Um, and so the teacher may be focused on a particular discipline, but the coach is there really to focus on life skills, on pastoral care, um, you know. And when we shift, when we make that shift from face-to-face -face teaching to online teaching, the recognition that actually the coaching aspect you know, triples, if not more. Um, you know, so for a lot of online programs, they'll have 10 pastoral care staff for every one, you know, academic disciplinary expert. Yes. And, you know, our institutions are not set up for that. So we've certainly made this pivot towards online learning when we've had to in an emergency. But recognizing that, okay, if we're going to continue down that path yeah. and we realize that we have to be able to build communities of care for our students, which we absolutely want to do, it's a very different investment. But currently, you know, from a university standpoint, that's not the way universities are funded. That's not where mm -hmm. the money flows yeah, totally. in terms of being able to have that staff. Right. Like, and, you know, certainly at the, at the secondary school level or the primary school level, that's a different set of conversations. But at a university level, it's not yeah. really happening, and that means that we wind up using teaching to subsidize other services. And that brings all sorts of other challenges. Yeah, and the way that the, the shift is in places like the US is that everybody becomes a family violence expert. So, you know, your hairdresser, like they've done it yeah. here, they've done it in the North Carolina, they've trained lots of hairdressers around family violence because as a person on the street, you don't need to have professional qualifications to say, that sounds scary, yeah. actually but it's the response that we give. So it's the awareness of what that thing is, the gut feeling of somebody's told you something that's not all right, yeah. and the ability to say, do you know what, that sounds really scary. You need to go and see these people. Yeah. So actually that first line of defense doesn't have to be done by a professional. Yeah. It can be done by everybody, a fire person, a teacher, a hairdresser, a whoever. You're just responding to something that your brain has said, that doesn't sound all right, instead of I better not get involved in that or say anything. But having Actually, the pathways to point someone to, to us, point someone right? To and knowing there what we to go. do. Yeah. That's what you need. Yeah. Wow. You, uh, you mentioned you're not doing that anymore. What, how do you describe what you're doing at the moment? So I do a few things, but um, I set up a women's business coaching business my elevator pitch is awesome. I've also not slept a lot. Of my child got up four times last night. Um, so we provide, my friend and I provide um, women's um, programs and coaching mm -hmm. over a number of weeks and months to um, support women to be brave in business. So to learn about what it is they love, the way they work, to, um, like you say, coach. Um, I, I, I did my coaching accreditation. I finished it a couple of months ago, but... The thing I loved and didn't realize about coaching is that you're silent most of the time. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 know, you come to a place with a person where they know they have everything they need in them. We're not mentors. We're not consultants. We're people that actually listen and then just say, oh, what about this? Or you know, ask really powerful questions, which I really yeah. love. So for me, I've not left that world in terms of working with women because I unbelievably absolutely love working with women um but i've just left that 
kind of crisis mm. part of the job. I get it. So why would you describe that what you offer the world is needed? Why is what I'm doing needed? Yeah. I think it's giving... Because you're on that bravery. Yeah, know. it's giving women the, a safe space. We try and create really safe spaces for women to talk about, you know, their love of money or their love of learning or their love of wanting to create something that they've been told from being tiny, you're, a, you're this, you're not supposed to like that. Yeah. Women aren't supposed to like money or talk about money or how much money they want to earn or get excited about it. Um, we're told we're not supposed to do that. Mm. So I think allowing those spaces and seeing what happens in those spaces, the magic that is created in those spaces when women sit around and have conversations they're not supposed mm. to have is like my... Oh, I want to eat it all up. <laughs> I well, it. I, found it, I found that specifically interesting when you were advertising some of your stuff around, you know, really honest conversations about women making money yeah. and getting over the fear of not only having the conversation but then chasing it as well and creating systems for that. And I never thought about it as a problem in society until I see what you do. Yeah. So, But why would I? Because I'm not a woman uh, in that regard. So maybe that's... You're not, but I think we all have money stories. Yeah. So we have yeah. stories that we've been taught and we live by but they're stories and mm. stories can be rewritten so yeah. in everything. So, you know, we've, we've been taught that we're supposed to get up on a Monday at nine o'clock and go to work at nine and yeah. finish at five and have Saturday and Sunday off. And, you know, it's been, and you, if you want to, if you want to work in business, you have to sleep under your desk and work a hundred hours a week and climb a ladder. And who says, you know, we can change that. Yeah. Um, and there was a really interesting, I don't know if you saw the front of the economist, it was probably last week or the week before about no. when we fail women, we fail. You know, with systems, the changing of women, having women in those conversations about how things are made or set up or structured allows that freedom of saying, we don't have to do it like that anymore. Mm. Um, so what have you seen this in your recent courses where people have attended? What's the impact that you've seen? What are the stories that you've retold for other women? What have they come back and then said, hey, this is now because of you. I think the l lowering of overwhelm, um, the, the, some women, particularly we've just worked through and who we then went into lockdown with said, oh my God, the, the, the anxiety I had in the first one is completely not there anymore. Because I've set up a business to, that I love that just either runs itself, um, I'm not doing everything manually, so that learning, which for me over the past couple of years has been a new thing. Mm. I don't have to do every single thing myself. Um, but also knowing that there's a, there's a North Star of something I'm heading towards, not a let's just do lots of reactionary things all over the place. Yeah. Um, allowing people to open up a computer on a Monday and go, I know what I'm doing. It's like there's nothing like it. Mm, giving and, them that system and yeah. process and And you can, and you know, tools. on a Tuesday at 10.32 a.m., you can go and ride your bike and shut it all down because you've set up a thing that says you're allowed, you can do that. Kind of cool. My mum goes, why are you not at work on a Tuesday at 9.30? And I'm like, because I work for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Selfie time. Um, and I understand the privilege of be, being able to do that. Not everybody is in that situation. Sure, but I want to build something that allows me to on a Tuesday 
go, mm. I'm not going to work today. And also it goes against the traditional norms, you're right, because nine to five, you know, date jobs, we've seen only recently how many people are now going, it's still a four-day week. And oh, productivity has gone oh. up instead of down. Mm-hmm. Isn't that odd? And for the last number of years, I definitely don't work five days because like, nah, I can't. Um, has that had an impact where you work or in oh. your students' expectations? Or? To a certain extent, but I think we've, we've actually been there for a long time. So, right. you know, so on one part, you know, we actually do a lot of the same work because I recognize from from the entire time I've been in design education, um, that, you know, we are 73% female. So the majority of our students are female, and that continues to grow. Um, And there's no, you know, I'm sure we could unpack a wide variety of reasons for doing that. But often it's seen that creative careers are more flexible. Mm. And so, you know, places where people feel that they can take sort of ownership over their own career long term. And that's certainly something that we teach, you know. The, the recognition that most of our students will not um, attain a career but will actually create a career out of thin air is something that we actually teach from the very beginning of saying, look, you know, within the creative industries, there's a wide variety of ways that you're going to, you know, build your career. And it may not just be about applying for a job and getting that job and, you know, working for there for 20 years. You know, that sort of 1950s kind of mindset of how we used to work. And so that's always been a bit washed away. Um, but we've certainly leaned more into that. For a while, um, there was a big push towards entrepreneurship. Um, and I think that we can look at that in two different ways. It was incredibly empowering. This is, you know, a, f- a few years ago. Incredibly empowering, but it was also sometimes really wasteful because, you know, often it was, okay, what is this new product you're going to create? And now take it out into the world. And there was a tremendous amount of sort of solutionism, like, okay, we can solve this problem that doesn't actually exist. Um, and we actually found that our students started to really be like, no, that's not, that's not really okay. where I want to be. It was, you know. um, and so we've pivoted away from that a little bit, much more towards um, uh, sort of community engagement as opposed towards you know, startup culture. And so we've seen a, a strong drop-off in terms of startup culture um, and more uh, yeah, community engagement. Um, how are we kind of, you know, again, making impact in sort of the world around us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the recognition that, yeah, that that's part of their career, that's part of their business. Um, but all of it is creative confidence, you know, and building that kind of resilience and understanding of how, how am I going to go out and do this in the world and being confident in being able to do that. And, and there's no real secrets to it. Like, there's not like there's this, like, secret guide that we can give people to say this is what you do to be successful. It's like, no, these are... You know, it's, it's just hard work, loads of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's individual work, right? Yeah, totally. From self-reflection, yeah. from self-worth, from yeah. past trauma stuff, from yeah. nurture versus nature and all that other oh. stuff. It's like, yeah. it's a lot more fluid than, hey, I'm going to teach you to become an accountant. Yeah. And there's a, an end result which should total up in terms of... Mm. Yeah. yeah, totally. Although I, sometimes I wonder if any education is actually like that. Like, like you were saying that, you know, most education is actually internal. And I think right. you know, it's, it's, it's probably the same in probably any career. You know, I can say, oh, you know, we're not teaching tax law here. But actually, you know, if you've ever been to a law school class, you realize, like, what are they actually focusing yeah. on? And they're obviously, you know, often focusing on 
how do we have these discussions? How do we lead these discussions? You know, these are you know, we're sort of te- we're all sort of teaching life skills yeah, and resilience and critical and reasoning all and all these stuff just in cr- across different lenses. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we absolutely you know teach people how to use a jacquard loom or you know learn particular technical skills. Um, but that's a small part of what we do. The rest mm. of it is how do you apply that? How do you want to put that into the world? What does that mean for you? Uh, you know, how do you take that to somewhere else? What kind of impact does it have? That's where the really interesting conversations yeah. come from. And uh, so, yeah, certainly there's a lot of sort of technical skills, which would be no different than, you know, learning maybe some of the core of accountancy or learning the basics of tax law. But then the rest of it is that context, that, you know, that is then where the really interesting conversations come out of. Fascinating. Yeah, the internal work of being educated or learning, you know, is very much your, yeah. I remember being in school once and having a teacher talk to us about the idea of, the journey of learning is just your own and uh, own, you get out what you put in, all those cliches. But the older I get, it's kind of, yeah, it's where the energy flows, right? And you'll see reciprocal gains from that if you're putting it in, in the right yeah. way yeah. or not, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the same with your women coaching, women in business coaching. It's, uh, it's probably some people turn up and go, right, you're going to give me all the answers then, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, for me, the biggest... When my coach, years and years ago, said to me, Jane, the work never ends. So as soon as you become all right with that, and it'll take you a while, because then I was like, no, <laughs> the emails will never stop. The, the work right. will never stop. The yeah. learning will never stop. But you, you can either cry and have a Netflix binge for three weeks about that, or you can accept that and just find the joy in the stuff that you do. Yeah. And allow yourself to have times when it's really hard, it's really joyful, it's really mm. awful, you know, um, and just actually allow that to wash itself over you. And it's the same for anything. It's like anything, you train for a race, you learn a language, you set up a business, you, it's all, it's all doesn't up, end. up and down. Doesn't end. Point, yeah. doesn't end. Isn't that the trick of whole life, though? The idea of getting delight through the process rather than the product or the end thing because there's no there is no end because there's yeah well there is it's pretty fine it's finite right? as well <laughs> apparently you never get out of this alive so you're I'll working towards <laughs> yeah but um yeah the process thing yeah. is always interesting to me is that, like what what do you actually how do you fall in love whatever you fall in love with and it's just the process i think there you find happy people mm. like artists for example who just love to paint the painting isn't the the thing uh, is yeah. the process of painting. Just like a musician is jamming, is that not the CDs they sell, right? There's a piece of the process that I think we all love. I, and I don't know if that's true for everybody else, but certainly within my own process, mm-hmm. there's a certain part of that that's really painful. Oh, man, right? I'm so with you. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea is that often people think, oh, creative people, they've got this process and they learn this process yeah. and they love it. And it's like, actually, no. I mean, mm. you know, there is. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I think I've developed a good skill for, which is terrifying, is walking into a new project completely kind of fresh and ha- having a feeling of that I don't have any idea what I'm doing, which is really okay. difficult for yeah. someone who, you know, has 20 years of experience in industry and, and selling myself to a big corporation saying, I'm the expert. Yeah. And I'm the expert by walking in saying, I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, and then going through and learning and going mm-hmm. the, and some of that process 
going through that is really painful and it deals yeah. with your own insecurities and saying, I'm doing terrible work, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually it starts to hit a rhythm. It gets to a point where really powerful things are happening and then that's when it really feels good. And then, yeah, often, at least for me, the end result, the, the product, that's actually, like, I don't even get that involved in that. Like, I, yeah, right. I'm, I'm usually on to the next thing yeah. by the time that that's being finalized. And, you know, that's obviously different for every different kind of creative practitioner. But often, you know, I'm there at sort of the earlier stages in terms of defining what is this going to be mm. and how is it going to work and all of that. And then from there, I sort of am able to pass that off, let somebody else sort of polish up the details and get on to the other messy stuff. But... Um, it's an addictive process, but it can be really painful. And I think many people don't realize that, you know, for some, you know, creative artists, certainly, that process is like a, you know, it's a stressful, yeah. painful, angry process that you're like, oh, okay, I know where you are in that phase of the project, and we're just going to step away from each other for a little bit, because you just have to... How would you that. describe that process right at the beginning when you were talking about, I go in and I sell myself, but yeah. I don't know? In my head, I was... And it's the wrong word, but I use it in a, a positive context. Naivety, mm. almost you're naive and like kind of playful with that yeah. idea of not knowing. Just that idea of, I mean, maybe curiosity in that okay. way of saying, you know, look, I don't want to bring too many of my own biases into this conversation. Yeah. Recognizing that, yeah, I have a lot of experience and I have a lot of sort of solutions that I could sort of pull out of a bag, but that's not necessarily what leads to good work. And so I really just have to sit here and listen and learn and get, you know, all of my baggage out of the way. And then I'll think about how I then collide yeah. my experience and knowledge with that. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, I'm, you know, I joke a lot in terms of a lot of creative practice, practices sort of founded on insecurity, right? I mean, mm. insecurity is wrapped up in the process. Totally. And it's about learning how to manage that and <laughs> learning how to be able to sit with it and be comfortable with it. Yeah, because our brains have a great way of forgetting that you get through it. You know, it's yeah. like a, you know, it's like when you do, if I've ever done a race or a, like you do a marathon and literally you, you're doing it going, I am, ne- why am I do- <laughs> never? And then like two days later you go, that was the most amazing yeah, part awesome. of my life. Yeah. And sign up for another one. You, your brain really quickly <laughs> yeah. forgets because yeah. I'm not a good person in limbo at all. I like to know what I'm doing. Mm. I like either being told what to do or that I have my things to do. I'm not an overarching visionary. I'm a very little the little things to do. But we all need those, we all need this, right? Yeah. Whereas I, I very much ascribe to what you were describing about, yeah, let's sign up again because I was horrible. And yours, like, <laughs> it's a bit addictive, but horrible. it's so messy and scary yeah. and horrible and painful. Yeah. And I think about, yeah, that's every TEDx for me. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's like, why am I signing up to do another yeah, TEDx? It's so painful to pull all this together and to do any type of event let's be honest uh it's the wrong thing to put your devote your time to if you want a happy life but then you go back and you're like oh it's the process i like Mm. it's the messiness and giving order to that mess and creating something out of the end is great but even that bit it's the bit before it's just the bit before i enjoy where it's coalescing and it hasn't just reached yet it's just right before the touch yeah, got a bit deep there. There's a um, I like that though. Yeah, and unfortunately, it, it just fell out of my head. But there's a wonderful quote which is about, about the definition of design, um, which talks about moving things from sort of existing situations to preferable situations. You know, and like that's as broad as you can imagine from a design context. But saying taking something that exists and making it better. 
Love that. Uh, and yeah. in some ways, that's the core of, I mean, in some ways, it's not even a design process. It's the core of everything that yeah. we've been talking mm. about today. Um, but you're absolutely right, saying, yeah, it's a painful process, but it's about structuring, organizing, getting everything together, yeah. and then saying the end result is something that has made an improvement in the world. Mm. But, you know, it took a lot of pain in order to get there. Instead of, sort of existing situations into preferable situations. Like that. Some existing to preferable Talking about design still, because I, I didn't know until, because I like to go into people's LinkedIn and go <laughs> through the past when they're having these chats, write down just a couple of notes to chat about. Rhode Island, in Rhode terms Island. of where you studied and where you got your degrees Island, from. Yeah. And I only, Rhode Island in the US, only bring that up because I've spent some time in Rhode Island. Really? Yeah, randomly, and not, a lot of people you go to Rhode Island. Island, kind of go straight to Boston or go yep. to New York or whatever, they don't go back up to Rhode Island, do they? Yeah. Um, and in terms of, I really like Rhode Island. It's a great it, little town. Providence is, is, a, is a really interesting little yeah. town. It's sort of the ultimate, I mean, it's a very East Coast, and I'm putting that in a very American context, but, you know, it's sort of East Coast college town mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, it has Brown University and it has RISD. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as a city, it flexes, you know, hugely when students come into town mm. and when they then leave for the for the summer break yeah uh, and so I lived there for many years uh, went to university there and uh, yeah it was I mean that's the place where I grew up that's the place where I became right. an adult formative years type yeah, thing you right? know? And so there's a, certainly a connection to it and it's sort of it's, yeah. you know it's an old it's an old mill town so it's a, it's grittiness in its um, uh, but it's a it's a it's a lovely place yeah it's got a Jaws link Pardon? Is there a Jaws link to Rhode Island? So, uh, no, but um, you're thinking of uh, probably Martha's Vineyard and some of the islands uh, off the coast or, or, or Nantucket. Yep, so, so they, they, they took those towns and, and changed all the signs uh, and turned it into, was it, was it Amity? I can't remember yes. the name of the, the, the city. Boom. Boom, that was yeah, it. Yeah. So all of yeah, those, they still have their signs. So if you go to those 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 stores that are still open, they have this, right. the, still signs, the, the signs from movie the signs. Movie signs. Up, yeah. Right. Well, the other Rhode Island thing is Pawtucket, which is made up for a family yeah. guy, right? Yes. Uh, so I actually went to university with Seth. Um, no we, we are not close. Um, but yeah, so we were, um, we were uh, in, in the same yeah. class at RISD. So he also went to RISD and, uh, and uh, spoke at our graduation so he could do all of his impersonations and things like that. And it was quite interesting for me and my, uh, you know, my close friends when he started to become really famous mm-hmm. it was quite interesting our sort of this this both pride and jealousy at the same time of watching somebody you know sort of launch themselves off yeah. into the stratosphere in terms of a huge career yeah. when family guy first started actually i didn't watch family guy for probably the first 10 years and now i've come back and sort of seen it and sort of you know and he's done so rec- many other things and he's done so well, many right? other things but sort yeah. of recognize that in the context of the person that i know but right. for a while it was one of those things where i just was like oh okay cool yeah good for you but yeah it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't my thing at the time well, I know it from um, the headquarters of Hasbro, just yes. on the road, um, and done some work with them. And yeah. also, there's a great innovation festival, BIF is called, mm. BIF, yeah, Business Innovation Festival, by a guy called Sol Kaplan, um, and I've attended that. So that's oh, cool. how I know it, it's just randomly. I, I did a project for Hasbro once, and it taught me a really wonderful lesson in that not every project is suitable for every designer. And so, you know, I was, you know, at the time I was doing a bit more traditional design, a little bit of interaction design, a little bit of uh, more traditional um, sort of marketing kind of driven work. Um, And, you know, doing it for a lot of corporations, a lot of tech companies. 
and got a project with Hasbro and realized that I was probably not suited for doing design for children. Okay. It just was one of those things where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not good at this. And I could see that other people would right. dive right in and have so much joy in terms of doing that. And I'm saying, you know. It's like a jacket you put on. It just yeah, doesn't it's fit. Just, it was just, yeah, it just, it just didn't fit for me. Yeah. So, I mean, they were a lovely company and they were great to work mm. with and their, their, um, uh, their facilities are amazing. Yeah. Um, in terms of sort of walking in there, in terms of huge toy testing rooms and, uh, you know, the props from Star Wars and things like that hanging from the ceiling. So just it's amazing. When you go amazing, on to the amazing thing with the big uh, potato head. The thing with yeah. the thing? No, a uh, big potato head. Oh, yes. That's yep. why they were yep. you know, founded, potato really, head. the company on Mr. Potato Head. Yep. So I just keep thinking big. of Harry Bow, and now I want sweets. <laughs> <laughs> I want gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> I like that's your level. It's like, give me yes, sweets. Like, yeah, no, I love it. Well, I was going to ask you a question which I forgot about, and it's only reminded me because it it's a very kind of sweet UK in my head. I always think about it, like, <laughs> oh, it's sweet. In terms of when you were mentioning your family of Ireland stuff, I know we're going back around, but sorry, but I, I forgot to ask this. Your experience of both the UK versus the, the you know, New Zealand context or experiences of both those kind of cultures. Um, similar, different? What, what was your take when you went from the UK and came over here? Um, oh, very, I mean, obviously, colonisation. Um, not no. good. No. Um, but the learning for me, obviously, I've been here 15 years now. So mm. my learning of where I come from and then coming to a country who is being colonised by a country that I come from yeah. has been a massive learning process for me. Um, but looking back, kind of, I mean, different but the same. My, my, because my awareness of family violence and the learning I've done over the time, looking back, I would have worked so differently because I was really young when I did that work. Mm. I was like 21, 22. In the UK. In the UK. Yeah. So I was fresh out of uni. I'd done a bit of travel. Um, I got into, I worked for the NHS for like five years with young people and then came here and then my, in hindsight, my work would have been so much different because my awareness of that field was bigger. Mm. So, but still I came, I, I'm, but also I moved from a, a very um, poor town to Queenstown, so different. Yeah. So different. Um, what town were you in in Manchester? I was in. I was. I was from Rochdale. Yeah. Which um, had the highest teenage pregnancy rate in Europe. Well done. <laughs> um, which has since gained notoriety um, with a massive court case that went on a couple of years after I left. Mm. So there was a huge, one of the biggest um, kind of grooming court cases mm. that had ever been seen in the UK. And then they went on to make a big series about it. Um, and that was the work I did. Like my boss was part of that wow. series and I was part of that, what happened. And since there's changed so much stuff in the UK about how we look at young people and sexual abuse and um, children, Child exploitation, mm. we don't call it child prostitution anymore because there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. um, and just a shift looking back at the work I did at the age I was um, to the work that I do, did when I came here. Um, 
the knowledge I have now, that work would have been so different. Mm. Wow. Okay. And I went through a massive guilt, shame process for a while after looking back at that work. Huh. Being like, oh God, all the stuff that I should have done that I didn't do. Oh, right. Do okay. You know? So you're carrying oh. yourself backwards yeah, into time. Yeah, yeah. But, but having it, guilt around Isn't it. it amazing that we can frame ourselves in guilt for the things that we've learned through experiences yeah. that we've had? Like yeah, it's, yeah, 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 totally. And also getting my yeah. citizenship this year, um, I went, everyone was like, yay! And I went through a huge, I'm still learning about, like, where I come from is of, you know, the, the history of where I come from is not my responsibility, but the, my responsibility is the future that I create. I've been, gone through a huge amount of shame for where I come from, yeah. to living to a country. When I look around and being in that, you know, family violence is rooted in colonisation. Yeah. Um, and so I've gone through massive waves of, yeah. Mm. Um, no, but you're a massive advocate of challenging other people in that yeah. respects, in a nice way, I mean, in terms of like asking questions, and I know you've asked stuff of me, uh, or just done stuff that made me go, oh, that's really interesting how you've, you know, do your, your proper mihis and stuff like that when I've seen you at things, and, and you've really embraced and educated yourself about what's appropriate. Uh, and I'm still learning, you know, yeah. I think we all are, right? We're still kind of, because we're all immigrants to this country, um, so we need to treat that with the respect it deserves. Uh, I still feel, yeah, disconnected, but also deeply connected. Yeah, it's weird. Like, eh? you know, the idea of the Welsh history and, and the language and the eradication of nearly of that has so many similarities with the Māori people and, and the te reo that they're trying to revitalise. And stuff. It's like, oh, it's the same story, but in a different place, but with different people, but it's the same. And it's fascinating, but then I've chosen to come here and it's not my land and all those other things that I yeah. have those stories. But you're right, it's the future that you need to focus on. But also you're right in tripping me out, thinking about the guilt that we carry backwards yeah. of our former self in the present. What? <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to ask you to ask questions now. I w well, I was just going to talk about that feeling. We're all obviously not from here. Mm -hmm. um, and that weird, where do we fit? What, you know, would I go back? Um, would you, what, yeah. you know, what are you pulled towards? And, and it's really interesting because la actually last night I had this, you know, and you had these random, I think it's the age thing, these random <laughs> memories of where I come from. And my partner was like, tell me about like the, the, the surrounding area of where you came from. I come from a very poor town, um, you know, cotton um, industry. It was a mill town. Right? Mill town, um, deeply racist, you know, poor, but the surrounding area is the most stunningly beautiful that I truly, I only just got into when I just left there. Um, and I had this massive, like, burst of remembering what was around my house okay and i was like oh i had this huge pull towards the hills and the right you know it's quite barren and it's quite desolate and the pennines and the pennines and it yeah. rains a lot and it's quite miserable um but i'd forgotten and deeply kind of felt like i'd left that left it and dropped it and it's not mine anymore so that feeling sorry the memory you had did it evoke feelings of like like yearnful, yeah, nice. really yearnful, and I've not had that right. for years. Right. I couldn't care. I for a long time couldn't care less about that country. Yeah, 
I think that lockdown has something to do with that. I think that, you know, I've, I've spoken to a few people and it seems that we're all kind of feeling the same way. Um, in that, you know, post-lockdown, um, all of a sudden you're thinking back to that place that you've sort of left. And there were a whole variety of reasons that I left and I'm very clear about it when I did it. Um, but yeah, all of a sudden, particularly because I can't go and visit mm-hmm. right now, yeah. um, you know, it is a little bit more... It's on the surface a little bit more. And yeah, so I'm, I'm having the same feeling in terms of, oh, it's more about the places and the, the feeling of a place. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been really important in my own journey to have left a place and be in a, in a new place. Um, you know, and it's taught me so much, you know, just in... Mm. Uh, and I think it's an experience that everyone should, should have a, a little bit of. Um, but yeah, this was really the first time that all of a sudden it started to sort of connect back. Uh, and that's a new thing. And I think, it, I think some of it does have to do with sort of the last two years that we've had. Because um, certainly, you know, America is a raging dumpster fire, and that hasn't changed. Um, but so then why am I looking at it differently than yeah. I did when I, when I left? I also think that's an age thing as well. Um, Potentially, yeah. You know, that thing of we've, we're, we're moving into an age where we realize that we're not going to be here forever. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the things, the touch points that we... Oh God, I might, you know, that thought of, I might never go home again. And I find it interesting, I still call that home. <laughs> but I might not go to that place again, or it might be 20 years before I can get there. Mm. Oh God. And now you're having a kid as and well. And now I have a child who's like, not met lots of my family, yeah. Yeah, and, and where the her roots now come yeah, from. Yeah, totally. Especially with Trent being, yeah. obviously, Australian as well, and... and uh, having roots in other countries yeah. as well. So he's like, it's like splintered. Wow. So where would you call home? You mentioned you found it strange calling Manchester home. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. where would I you still, call home? I still call Massachusetts home. Right. When, when I, if, if I think of home, it hasn't shifted here yet. Okay. Um, and that was a tough re- recollection for me. I remember having a moment where I basically said, uh, this doesn't feel like home to me. It's a lovely place, and I'm very happy to be here, and I'm yeah, embedded yeah. in it, and you know, and there's so much that I'm, I'm gaining from it. But at the same time, like it doesn't quite feel like home. Yeah. And uh, that was a like all of a sudden, it sort of was a shocking kind of moment. Mm. Yeah. So why though? Well, why why is Massachusetts home for oh, you? Like, yeah. what is it that makes it that? Is it mm. people? Or yeah. Memories. I think right. it's. I think it's people. It's memories. It's uh, you know. It's my collect. It's my connection to the the place. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a that's a yeah. that's a challenging one. Like it's just it's sort of an automatic reaction. Oh, what's that? Yeah. You know. It's an odd way to think that we're all from somewhere else, but we're all yeah. converging here. And it's a lovely poem when you do your little wander arounds. Where there's a bridge from uh, the, you know, where the library is, yeah. with the the art gallery. There's a lovely bridge over to the waterway there, and there's a poem there oh, which talks about mean. Wellington being like a, a verb, an action city, because no one ends up in Wellington. You have yeah. to attempt to be here, so it attracts people who are <laughs> verbs, yeah. actioneers in a sense. And and we actually stole, I stole that and folded it into some of my stuff around TEDx because mm. we never never had volunteers, we had actioneers. Mm-hmm to try and make the point that don't just turn up, you got to do shit when you turn up. Because we had a lot of people volunteering but never doing anything, right? It's just like, no, action, action is the point of it. But I do think there's something about New Zealand that does attract that kind of pioneer, I hate to say pioneer because that's colonial, but maybe adventurous spirit. Yeah. And to sustain yourself here, 
you also have to have a deep kind of hunger to be here. Because it's easier to be other places in the world, I think, to be honest. And maybe it is down to the COVID as well that we're feeling nostalgic for home because mm -hmm. we feel hemmed in for the first time. Because before we would just, yeah, go and visit. Now we can go, but will we get back in as easy, yeah. you know? We can leave, but... We can't come back. Not as easy as <laughs> just hop, out, hop in. And that's the tension. Yeah, and I think it's really important as well to connect because there's so many feelings of, um, of uh, you know, I, I don't want that place or I don't want to be part of that thing anymore. Mm. Connecting in with, particularly because I've got a small person, showing her what's, what is traditional about the place I come from has been really important to me. So I played some folk music to my husband the other day and he was like, what is this? And I was like, it's so wonderful. And he's like, I don't get, what is this? And it was all about fish. And, and I mean, I'm not even in it from near the sea, but it was still like that traditional and like pipes, you know, right. playing pipes in bars and it's kind of slightly Irish sounding. Mm -hmm. um, and my daughter was like, what is this? And I was like, this is your roots. Yeah. Um, because I wanted her to connect. I want her to start to connect to some stuff that she, you know, the whole thing about raising biracial children is that they, that you give them as much as you can and then they pick what they want. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's what they end up with, you know. So it's like, here's all the stuff. Yeah, they're third culture yeah. what you want. humans, aren't they? Yeah. They've got to create their own culture yeah. out of these two things. Totally. But yeah, the first thing I could think of was like this music oh, that I played music. and okay. my husband was like, what is I thought you were going to say, I made him some Yorkshire pudding. Oh, no. Do you know what Yorkshire pudding I'm is? I'm not even from Yorkshire. I know, but it's a very English, no, 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 kind of totally. traditional British yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, and it's just like eating stodge. Oh, basically, so good, it's lovely. So good. But we also synthesize that. So, you know, I mean, and I sort of joke about this and, you know, I'm still on this journey. But, you know, when I first came here, I realized that I... I'm not a mathy person, so I'm not good at numbers. You know, I do a lot of computer programming, but I'm not good at like more traditional maths, which is one of the reasons why I probably went to art school. Um, but I basically spent at least three years with no sense of measurement, um, because you know I understood miles, I understood Fahrenheit, um, you know, all of my systems of measurement that I had built, everything that I know around estimation, yeah. were not in use here. But instead of just trying to convert that, mm. I basically said, eh, I'm just not going to worry <laughs> about it. And, um, and that was kind of okay. So it's just like, you know, I don't really know what temperature it is out, and I don't really yeah. know. You know. And so like, but I literally like, you lived for quite a long time, and still, like, I still think of things in, in Fahrenheit, for example, yeah. as opposed to Celsius and those kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, like, I, it's like it, and it's not like I'm being like, stubborn or like it's a conscious choice not to. But it was just one of those things that just, oh, I don't understand that as a system. And it'll, I'll slowly start yeah. to understand it as That's we funny, go. That's because I dropped that straight but, away. Yeah, I dropped same. miles in Fahrenheit. It's gone. As soon well, as yeah. I moved here, I was like, I don't work like in that anymore. It took me a while to get my head around kilometres. Because we have miles to run. I'm right. a runner, so everything's in kilometres. Right, yeah, okay. so yeah 5K or yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever, of course, yeah. 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 So it's a bit of an experiment, but I, you know, actually for quite a long time you could sort of live without measurement and just yeah. realize, no, actually most of that stuff doesn't matter. I don't really care what temperature it is at. You mentioned uh, computer programming there, and I wanted to ask you from a design slash art slash computer stuff, because uh, I know you've played around in that space, and that was your, your previous career as well, and still are involved in some stuff. But NFTs, 
I'm having some fascinating. Do you know what NFTs are? I know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. You probably have seen some stuff online about NFTs, and it actually means non fungible tokens. Which, again, what the fuck does that mean? You can give me that for something else that I don't even know what I mean. Great. It's basically you create a digital artifact. Could be a GIF, could be a movie, could be an image. Digital artifact, could be a sound. And you then impregnate, essentially, or you lace into that artifact uh, a specific identity, right? And that's where crypto comes yep. in, right? And Bitcoin and Ethereum, because these are payment that you can buy that artifact. And only you know you've got that artifact. Yep. In fact, it could be replicated, as in the artifact itself. But the laced-inness of the uniqueness of the ID, the, the hash now is everywhere, but also, you can actually go and sell that on, and I can get the commission, like 10% on that artifact, because I'm the originator of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm always going to know that I created that, and I'm going to have a kickback. So artists have jumped on this in the last, literally, probably nine months. It's just boomed. Mm-hmm. Probably two years has been happening. So artists are now really going hard to digitalize their content and selling works. Now there's online marketplaces and you can I just did a course on Skillshare how to create an NFT because I wanted to know and it's so simple you just upload something and it pushes out a little hash thing and then you push that up into the world and job done so people are making megabucks on this uh, they are coining it in right however there's the other side of this argument Mm -hmm. which is it sounds all fun and funky right However, to actually run the back-end infrastructure of all this is all computational data that actually needs to make it work, essentially. And I don't know enough about it. I just know that this computational data infrastructure sucks in enough for a small African nation, essentially, per day. (laughs) Something stupid like that. It's probably more, actually. Mm. Just to make these things work, because it has to work at a level of computational things. Right. So now we now know all that. <laughs> what do you think about NFTs? <laughs> Ooh, you know, yeah, I, no. have to, I have to be careful here because I, I, I have this fear that I'm just going to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud. Okay. Um, I'll join you. I am very pleased to see artists getting paid for their work, yeah. but I actually think that NFTs are probably more in the category of a pyramid scam mm. than an actual sustainable process. Um, I have real concerns about the idea of artificial scarcity Mm. um, because that naturally means that we are excluding others, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in an NFT, it's absolutely 100% about artificial scarcity. You know, I came from, uh, you know, I got interested in working digitally because... um, I was really interested in what this world was and, and, and the ability for so many people to come into it, you know. And understanding what these mediums even were it existed as opposed to more traditional forms of art. Um, you know, so a piece of code, for example, could be shared and has always historically been shared, yeah. you know, passed from person to person to person and improved. And, you know, and so that idea of ownership, you know, the idea of that software could be owned, you know, it was in itself a radical idea at a particular time and made certain people lots of money. Um, and so in the context of NFTs, there is a great deal of this idea of artificial scarcity, right? right? So the idea is that you're really just buying a little piece of the blockchain and there is a tenuous connection to a piece of art that is connected to that blockchain, but you know, if a particular server goes down, then all of the records of that disappear and things like that. So it's not a real 
robust sort of system. Um, and I think what a lot of people aren't talking about is that there's a tremendous amount of money being made of artists paying their, for lack of, I don't know the proper term, like stake fees to create the NFTs. Right. Right. And so and a lot of that value is actually being then moved to the few people that are getting a lot of traction in terms of selling their work. So, you know, I have I, I know, you know, a variety of digital artists that I really respect. Some have said, I, I don't think this is an ethical place and I don't want to be involved. Others have said this is a wonderful way for artists to get paid for their work and yeah. we want to see artists get paid for their work. Um, but there's still a lot of questions around it and I personally don't think that it's the right direction to go down. I'm sure I will be proven wrong um, because it is making people a lot of money. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion that a lot of that is actually um, money laundering, mm. um, which is not something that has not existed within the art world in, in terms of certainly oh, high, high stakes <laughs> art sales, you know, <laughs> particularly in the last 10, 20 years, you know, have a great deal of that going on. So there is a lot of that. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I have... Um, you have to be very, very careful in terms of the spaces that you're working with um, from an ethical standpoint. So, yeah. you know, proof of work cryptocurrencies use, um, you know, basically derive their value from huge amounts of computational load that relies on lots of electricity, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Bitcoin now uses, I think, more electricity than all of Europe, for example, in terms of the, the mining of, of Bitcoin. Yeah. So, you know, it's actually, you know, all of the work that we've done in the past five years in terms of actually trying to raise uh, and be more sustainable has actually kind of wrapped itself back around because of the mm. huge draw of crypto. There are other systems in place, um, and so a lot of the colleagues that I know are working you know, with uh, like tools like Tezos, for example, which is a proof-of-stake cryptocurrency, so it doesn't use electricity or it doesn't use resources to derive value. Okay. Um, and that's, I think, a more sig it's significantly more ethical than mm. some of the other ones. So I've got ethical problems in general with the idea of artificial scarcity, and then below that, yeah. how then that plugs into a wider kind of cryptocurrency conversation, which is deeply unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and so it's a question of saying, you know, I think for a lot of artists, they're sort of saying, I recognize that I could maybe make a little bit of money from this, um, but at what cost. Yeah. And um, I do worry that we'll see a big rush of artists paying to get into that market and not really seeing the benefit because mm. all of those proceeds get sucked up, again, like any other kind of market, get sucked up to a few small people that are making significant amounts of money. So really it's, it's just being passed from one to the other. And it's fascinating, you also see an artist who are not in the, what would be traditional art realms you know, musicians and stuff like that, very quickly putting their names to stuff, album covers, one-off, selling in for a stupid amount of money. Um, the uh, Aaron, um, what's his name, the ex-number 10 for All Blacks. Um, yeah, anyway. So we had an ex-number 10 All Black also putting out some, like, collectibles, right, oh. on NFTs and stuff like that. So you, get, you, you are seeing a land grab, for want yep. of a better word, a digital land grab in it. But yet I, I got those two ethical concerns mm. and it might even be a, like a third one of it's a, a solution to a problem and no one really had in the <laughs> digital context. Yeah. You know, they're saying, oh, yeah, it helps artists pay money, but, but not that way and not in. But yeah, you know, people like Beeple who sold mm. his whole. Uh, art catalog. He's been doing oh, it for yeah, years. This yeah, guy yeah. for like sixty-three million. Yeah, and it's like that's just one digital artifact he sold. Of course, it's all his work, but yeah. it's like 
good on you for doing that, but you created the open the floodgates. But it's a very fuzzy space. So, um, you know, particularly around sort of Creative Commons and open source licensing. Yeah. So, for example, yeah. around like the MIT license. So there's many digital artists that for, you know, and again, there has always historically been kind of a culture of code sharing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, someone might write some code and they would release it under an MIT license, which means mm. other people can use it. Uh, so there was an example, I think it was the... Um, uh, it was a, the drawings of these fish, these beautiful sort of computational fish okay. that a particular artist had created. Another group then set up a company, took his code, and started selling NFTs and say, we're going to make an addition of 10,000 of these you know, parametrically created fish, and we're oh, going to sell them. And legally they can do that because the MIT license doesn't stop anyone from doing that kind of work. Yeah, they just so, iterate it and then it's... You know, and so if you, if, you go, you know, if you go shopping for NFTs, you'll see a tremendous amount of work that's actually not the original yeah, artists. But no, anyone can upload any picture they, they, they choose. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like the copyright hasn't really caught, caught up. But even beyond that, mm. how we go from a culture of we're working together and we're sharing this because, unfortunately, because there's not a lot of money in it. Yeah. Um, and previously, it was um, things like advertising agencies and marketing agencies. You know, that they would see some sort of amazing... Um, interaction or something and then they would sort of scoop that up and make yeah. it into a big campaign yeah. um, but now anyone can do it and yeah. we have all of these wonderful artists who've been you know 20 year careers who have you know made all of this amazing work and most of that work is open and free to the public for people mm. to use and continue to work uh, or continue to play with and then people can sort of grab that and say all right well then i can use that as the foundation of me creating a whole collection of nfts and as long as i can get a large enough network if i have a large enough voice online yeah I can have people come and buy it. Um, so it's really just about, you know, it's about what is that footprint, what is yeah. that social media footprint in terms of, in terms of being But the whole social that. media side, which some of my past career was very much in, and I know yours was with, with Queenstown Life and stuff like that, what has enabled us to meet amazing people, have great experiences and opportunities, travel around the world and stuff, is also now just like any technology being usurped and being put to some really kind of, odd ways and you just think yeah some people are using it empowering ways but take a percentage probably you know very small percentage of doing nfts in a good way and fun and creative and pushing the boundaries and like you say when people used to come up with new like digital techniques for with their handheld cap cameras and you know like in six months time that's a new advert for nike yeah, that's a, that's because a they thing. kind of yeah, but that's the story. And that's the creative process. That's fine. Yeah, that's iterative. But now it's slightly different. It's the story of my career, though. I mean, you know, again, like I, <laughs> right. you know, I spent so much of my career in this place of thinking about the positive impact of technology, mm. and I'm incredibly privileged. You know, I've got students who, you know, have you know worked for Facebook and you know Spotify and Amazon, and you know, and they're all still in, in some of those places. And some of them have actually you know now retired because they've become so wealthy. But the problem was is that, you know, we were a discipline that had, a, you know, I think at the beginning, certainly well-meaning, really interested in teasing out what the technology was, how is this going to work, what's possible, what can we do. Not a tremendous foundation in ethics, you know. I mean, back then, ethics wasn't really taught in an art and design context, and that's something that we're working to change. Um, and today, you know, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we would have never imagined that, like, Facebook would have a direct impact on democracies failing, yeah. you know? But, like, 
that's a design problem. You know, this idea of kind of monetization and sort of stickiness and the ways that we've sort of created interactions and, you know, through, and then, of course, the economic value of misinformation. You know, in terms of, you know, it is you know, in absolutely Twitter's best interests and probably YouTube's as well to have these sort of categories of being able to yeah. pass these circles of misinformation around. So, you know, the whole point is that we've built these systems and many of them were built with good intentions. But then that started to drift and many people still stayed in that industry and still continued to push that work. And so I've watched my industry go from something that was looking very clean and saying this is about possibilities and these are, we can do these things, we're empowering people and watching that shift. Yeah. And now we're starting to move to a place where we're thinking about, well, then what's the impact of that? You know, When I look at somebody's resume and I look at the companies they worked at, my perception of them is now very different than it would have been mm. 10 yeah. years ago. You know, yeah. Some, yeah, I should probably be careful, but you know, someone who works for Uber, for example, and you say, yeah. all right, well, you know, 10 years ago we would say, wow, you're working for this really dynamic, interesting company. And today you say, hmm, this is yeah. probably a real fundamental ethical issue around... Sure. The whole entire business model, you know. So, you know, if if a if a company's business, you know, design can't be ethical if the company's business model isn't ethical. Like it, 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 and it, it goes all the And a lot of these companies have built their companies on what used to be a bug. Yep. They now become a feature. Yeah. Like it was used to be a bug in the system that created the misinformation, the algorithm misfiring. So now they're features of it. They've like amped it up. They've turned the, that dial yep. up because they know they make more money out of the bugs. Exactly. Than the features. Exactly. That's a really interesting point you made about ethics, though, because completely mirrored by that is the current situation we've got around mental health, around there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to say there's a lot of money around, but there's a lot of money around to support people with mental well-being and health because of the current situation. Yeah. So what you're finding is there are lots of these things, um, and the mirroring is, uh, you'll find mental well-being groups, systems set, being set up from a really good place, but there's no ethics because people haven't been taught about that. Yeah. Or it's not come from a, it's come from a, we're going to set up this thing, but actually when you talk to them about ethics and systems, there is none. So then people end up getting, it's very dangerous. Yeah. Can I ask what's ethics in the system that you're describing around mental health and well-being? So, for example, you know, you, you, you might find currently in Queenstown there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of stuff going on because, you know, it's, we're tourism-based. And so that you'll find that there'll be, you know, a pot of money will pop up. Some group will go, you know, for supporting mental well-being in the community. Somebody will go, we're going to set up a group yeah. for people to come and talk about trauma. So instantly, people who work in trauma go, <laughs> and then they ring us and say, oh, uh, I've just had somebody who's just told me something really dangerous or worrying. And you'll, ethically, you'll say, well, what are the ethics around the work that you're doing? Right. You know, what, who's protecting you when people offload yeah. information? Yeah. What do you do? One, what do you do with that piece of information? Because it's dangerous, worrying. But then who looks after you? Mm. Once that person's offloaded that information onto you, and generally we get, oh. <laughs> right. So that it's gotcha. like that kind of a, a very, I just, it just sounded so similar in terms of the. It's 
exactly the same. How it's the same? I mean, it even happens, I mean, even at a student level, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about sort of, you know, design thinking and design processes. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there's a lecture that I give where I show a whole variety of resources that you can find online about, you know, how to run a user interview and those kinds of things. And, you know, I, I have to sort of say, if you have to go online to read about how to do a user interview, it's probably not safe to be doing a user interview. Like, you probably shouldn't be doing that, right? Like, it's, it's just that basic. Like, these are, you know, relationships of trust. Yeah. I mean, when you're working with, you know, indigenous people, for example, there's a whole variety of other practices and properties that you need to be involved in. Like, this is not just something you can wander in and say, oh, I'm just going <laughs> to go and take this I'm going to set up a group. <laughs> yeah, and let's, and let's learn about this. And yeah. Let's, and, yeah. It's like, no, there's actually a real ethical foundation here. And, and this is, from a design standpoint, I think that it's an area that we need to focus on more. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's always shifting. Um, and I think the students recognize that that's a place they want to be in. It's not mm-hmm. something that they are against. They're saying, we actually want to know more about that. They, they recognize that they have the ability to do harm, and I, I really value that. Um, but like everything else, you know, the, sort of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like yeah, these yeah. people are not trying to be, to do bad things. No. But they just wind up putting people in harm. Yeah. And I think it happens, it happens everywhere. Yeah. You know, I would say that in my discipline, I don't think that we've had you know, not everyone is wearing a white hat. You know, people have early on, you know, recognized, oh, yeah, this, we could do a lot with this and not really thought deeply about the kind of impact that that's going to have. And, um, you know, I think as we've seen a whole variety of people retiring in their 30s and then saying, I'm not really comfortable with what we used to do. It's like, well, yeah, but... Yeah, the tech that's bro a, conscious. There's a, there's a, yeah, that's there's a really... a lot happening out there, isn't Yeah, there? exactly. And but there's some good stuff it. coming out, you know, yeah. the... The Center for Humane Technology and their recently Emmy award-winning documentary that you can still watch online, I think, uh, was really cool about all that. People literally going, "Oh yeah, I designed, you know, the Instagram or the Facebooks or the Uber," yeah. and it's just like, and then what's telling in that uh, documentary, which is stuff that we know, but it's always good to see the human reaction is when they say, "How much uh, technology do you allow your kids to have access to?" And all of them who are parents going, hardly any. And you're like, yeah, but you, you, and it's fascinating that, how we need to divorce. And in terms of just lingering on technology, but also mental health, you know, the 20 years that you spent, but also now you're still utilizing technology, but where does technology come and what role does it play in mental health? Not just now, but going forward, how can we utilize it for the better rather than just the worse? Do you think? I suppose it's who holds it. Who holds the power of it um, and, and what we do with it when it's allowed out into... Because mm. I always think, like you say, you know, these things are often started with really good intention, mm. but then humans get hold of them. <laughs> <laughs> so humans start them, but then humans get hold of them. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the, you know, w- w- the, the stuff that we learn when we grow up impacts the way we do work. Yeah. Um, and, you know the good and evil, even though I don't really believe in good and evil, but, you know, the, the, what happens when we, when humans get older stuff. Yeah. Because um, com- community and connection is, and relationships are, ever, are everything for everything. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, for business, for everything. Everything is based on relationship, right? So mm. com- community-wise, I mean, like you said, I've, I've met some people I would never have met if I hadn't have been on certain platforms that mm. now I question every day whether or not I should be on. But then you think, oh, but that thing was so good, but then I did it. Um, so 
so yeah, it's it's a constant. It is. It's a head point. fuck. Yeah, totally. And I always come back to something that I've held dear for a very long time, um, which is real life has more bandwidth, and the fidelity on these experiences, whether it be online, are augmentative, but they're not. They doesn't replace this. They can never. Like we could have done this mm-hmm. on Zoom. Practically, I mean. We could have. I could have recorded it. The fact we're sitting in a room, I think, adds a layer of authenticity, adds a layer of connection, of humanness to it. I can nuanced, see you. Yeah. There's mm. more nuanced yeah. about it. There's peripherally a lot going on. Whereas on Zoom, you can't really make it out. So there's a reason why real life still kind of trumps everything else, right? Would you put it down? I mean, I 100% agree with you. But I'd be curious However. if you would get the same answer from a 13-year-old. Right. Um, because, yeah, I'm not sure that the real world has the same draw. Um, you know, I saw this you know, in the, the, the bisection of people who want to do skateboarding and people who play skateboarding video games, <laughs> right? And the recognition, yeah, they're yeah. like, oh, I can actually get sort of 90% of the experience that I wanted to have yeah. in this virtual space. And so this, mm-hmm. the virtualization of things is, is something that in, intrigues me. But I'm curious, as in terms of younger generations, I think we're all rooted in a particular place where we're still very much connected to that face-to-face experience. But, you know, I have to recognize that a great deal of my social interaction has taken place through computing, yeah. even at my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, through AIM and all these other technologies that, you know, sort of existed and how you know, so we build relationships and things like that mm-hmm. through that. Um, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger for each, you know, yeah. each sort of uh, generation. And you know, I'm, I'm, I have to sort of wonder what that means long term. And you know, for people who've grown up, you know, entirely you know, with 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 video games and with you know having all of these tools at their disposal, that relationship of saying, oh, you know, um, I remember once there was a. I heard somebody uh, was complaining that their child was saying, oh, I don't want to watch a people movie. Right? They wanted to watch something that was animated. <laughs> right? People was too, was too real. Too real. Was, was too rooted in the real right. world. I don't, yeah. want, I don't want to watch a people movie. Um, and again, these are you know, little, little anecdotes. Yeah, but, yeah. I, but I'm curious, you know, the, our connection to this idea of that face-to-face connection, yeah, obviously it's not something I want to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we recognize, like on Zoom, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it fatigues us in different ways. We engage in different yeah. ways. Um, but we're increasingly seeing sort of our youngest generations be a lot more embedded within technology and also in virtual experiences. Mm-hmm. And like I wonder what that means in the future. And so sometimes I wonder, like I completely, I completely right. agree with what you're saying, but I wonder if that's actually a bias of the experiences that yeah. we're carrying forward. Because we're also in a, we are, we remember life without it. Yeah. So it's deeply rooted in, I, if, if, if you didn't meet your mates at the time they said at the corner of that shop, you were gone for the yeah. night. That was it. You spent the whole night walking around the streets looking for them or walking to the wrong pub and not finding them. Uh-huh. But we, I remember, we remember life, what life was like without it. So I think young people, like, we can never know what yeah. it's like to not know that. Yes, we, we are a transitional generation totally. from yeah. the digital to the analog. But I, I remember writing a piece about the pauses that we have lost because of this. In other words, what you've described is perfect, you know. But the, the space between the expectation of an experience and the experience itself 
that has really been lost on these generations. Because, for example, if you wanted to watch a movie when you were younger, it might mean a trip to the cinema. It might be going to the video shop, right? Stuff, stuff like that. Even like putting the thing in and playing and watching stuff. There was a pause. It was a generative kind of experiential kind of up curve to the actual experience itself. Um, or watching things on TV. If it wasn't on at Thursday, 7 p.m., because the Top of the Pops was on, right? That was the only time you were going to watch it until VHSs start to appear. And then you go, but then even have to run upstairs and you've got to be on the right channel to tape it. But do you yeah. remember that if you missed the, if you missed the, at the cinema, you had yeah. to wait a year for it to come out. Good right? point, yeah. VHS. So the pauses <laughs> generate something that we have lost now. And we even get frustrated, you know, we can't stand on a, on a, 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 in a bus stop without, without going... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fill in our pauses with something that tickles us, right? Which is engagement all the time. Which is, yeah, which I've done less of. No, I was going to say there was an amazing thing on the news last night where they filmed people waiting for their vaccination in in Australia. And, you know, see, when you wait, you sit in your chair and there was spaces, but no one was allowed a phone because they were... You had to leave your phone out of the room while you waited. Gotcha. And they, it, it was a news thing. And the biggest thing I noticed was people sitting there with nothing to do. Yeah, they don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> and they their don't, hands. honestly, it was like... Didn't know where to put their hand. But it was really interesting because the biggest mm. thing that popped out was like, oh my God, nobody's on their phone. Everybody looks completely uncomfortable. It's like the 80s all yeah. over again. <laughs> <laughs> there were no bad children that. <laughs> but, you know, you know it, it, in some ways it's like, like my dream came true because you know when I was a child I I wanted to learn so much like there was I had all these interests and I just you know so I was just always reading and I had all these books and those kinds of things and in some ways the internet is this amazing resource that just gives you everything at your fingertips so at any given moment if I want to learn something new I can go onto YouTube and I can watch a tutorial or I can read about it and I still find myself doing that all the time like Mm -hmm. like I'm always learning but what's so interesting is that I recognize that not everybody in the world has used it in that way. Yeah. And in many ways, we've also seen this huge rise of misinformation, right? And so, like, actually, like, the thing that I dreamed of, the thing that I, you know, is, has been life-changing for me in terms of giving me access to, you know, this, this immense just knowledge base um, at the same time has had a negative effect. Yeah. And, like, I don't know how to position myself towards that, you know, because that was, like, everything that I've always wanted. And, you know, like, yeah, like, oh, I can learn about this, I can learn about this, I can, you know, I can continue to sort of add these things together. But at the same time, it's had this tremendously negative effect mm. on a huge amount of people. Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, that, like, again, I would never expected that. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's... But every new medium brings with it both good and bad, which is what you would... It's, it's, the medium isn't the problem, it's the humans that interact with it, isn't it? Yeah, We're sure. all now doctors of epidemiology, yeah, of right? Of course, all of yeah. Us. We have an opinion yeah, on yeah, every yeah, totally. strategy and every little turn and yeah. nook and tra- cranny, so you, you're right. And I, I'm almost reminded of when the novels came out and uh, they were saying that women shouldn't read novels when they started to print them, you know, and uh, whenever it was, because uh, they will get foolish ideas that there are Something other worlds and imagine it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> can't run things that breasts will drop off, right? This is what um, but I remember those, like, you know, moral panics were so... Every new medium had a moral panic about it. I suppose there's a difference with this one because of the hyper-connectivity mm. and where you can access, what you can access, and the speed at which you could distribute as well, thoughts, ideas, and stuff like that. That's different. Mm. is the speed and connective element yeah. within the medium itself. 
I was just going to say, I, I'm not a natural learner. I don't, I, I learn if I need something. Okay. So I'm not somebody, you know, I'm, I am, I want to know French. I don't want to learn French. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I live with somebody who's the opposite. So, so you want the matrix. Brilliant. I know yeah, Kung totally. Fu. Right. And I, and I, somebody said to me once, but do you not like sit there and think about all the stuff there is to learn online? And, and of an evening you've got eight, five hours and you go crazy because you've got, and I'm like, no. It's not like I'm not a YouTuber. I'm not a sit sure, and yeah. learn a new thing. Like I'll if I need something, I'll go off and find it, learn it, carry on with my life. That's good. Very. very and I find it really interesting for people. I think for people who sit there and think, think about all the stuff you yeah. can learn online. I'm like, mm. yeah, it's paralyzing. Yeah. yeah, you're ahead of us then. In terms of your time and being being uh, uh, careful with it, I want to kind of maybe bring this to a close with maybe a juicy question. Sure. Yeah. What are you, in the next few months, going to throw your potential at? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything that I do is, I mean, it's not just me, of course, there's an amazing team of people around me, um, is very much about sort of identifying sort of the patterns you know, we see in life and through technology and all of that kind of stuff. And then trying to understand how curriculum and education responds, mm. right? And so sort of saying, you know, what can we teach now that will have value in 10 years yeah. based on what we're seeing and what we expect to have happen? And so that's a constant process of, uh, you know, all of these things. Like when we talked about NFTs, we talk about technology, we talk about ethics. Every single one of those is then a conversation around, okay, well then how does that change the conversations that we have every single day in yeah. the classroom? Yeah. And, you know, whether, you know, sometimes it's about major changes, like creating a new major or creating an entirely new sort of area of study. Sometimes it's about saying this is just an area that we need to, this is a, a, a conversation that we need to make sure is embedded within the teaching that we do. And so that's, you know, that's a constant like iterative process, right? It's mm. another sort of design process, but it's much harder to see what the results are going to be because it's a really delayed process, right? Yeah. Uh, designing a four-year education for, you know, someone who will stop working in 2070. Ooh, that's a good problem to have. It's a fantastic problem to have. Yeah, never thought about it like that. With the rapid change of everything as well, yeah, on top of that. Good, good response. How about you? I am trying to push my hatred of not knowing what's going to happen in, in a sense that I'm in a bit sticky bit of business where I'm throwing shit against the wall and seeing mm -hmm. what sticks. Um, so what I'm trying to do at the minute is allow that to be all right. Right. Be comfortable with be comfortable the uncomfortableness. With the uncomfortableness. <laughs> yeah. I have a business partner who is very calm which is great because yeah. she constantly just keeps going, mm. it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. But is it never not like that? Like, I mean, you know, like the process you just described, I'm thinking, is there another process? No, like, I know. Well, I know I want that to be. <laughs> I know. There's, there's never that kind of certainty. It's always about what's going to stick. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and be actually excited by the journey. Yeah. And, and just be like, be all right with it. Mm. And actually being excited for the fact that I, I'm, I can do that. Like yeah, I'm, you can. I'm in a situation where um, it's all right for me to do that. And lean into the idea you've done it before. Yeah. You, you've literally changed, transitioned, whatever you want to call it, into different careers, different ideas, and yeah. chased things down. You've got this. Got this. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Yeah. 
and train for a hard race that I've got coming up. That's what I'm doing at the minute. Pound the streets. Pound the streets, yeah. Go Rocky! Keeping a child alive. There's that as Actually, well. Actually, that, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. <laughs> <laughs> should have started with sure that. Right, Maybe, yeah. Sure. yeah. Pop tarts. Yeah, fine. fine. Yeah. Harry Bowl. TV? Yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Harry keep feeding them Harry Bowl and yeah. then keep going. Yeah. It's fine. Well, thank you for both of your time. Yeah, that's a pleasure. You. This has been fun. Yeah. Hopefully, it's been good for yeah. you. You haven't eaten any chocolate. And we've been talking it's so much. good. Yeah. You can have some now. <laughs> You've been listening to Creative Welly, episode 22. My name's been DK. Thank you for giving us your attention and time. Big shout out again to the video producer of the podcast, who is John O'Tucker over at Empire Films. And also, David, thank you for hosting us for free at Dragonfly Studios. Check them out. Check those people out. Check out Jane. Check out Brian. Check us out at creativewelly.com. And keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.